you guys ready up there? Hello and welcome to the Women in Film and Television Ireland podcast. My name is Fiona Kinsella, I'm a WFT board member and I'm a producer at Jumper Productions and Tile Media. Today's podcast is from the WFT Ireland archives and features a masterclass on directing with Nata Hardiman. This talk covered the editing segment and was recorded in the RT studios in 2017. NASA began the session by showing a powerful clip from Happy Valley. I'll show, I'll show you the um, autopsy one. The interesting thing about that as well is uh, in the in the script, um, Sally had this idea that we should see it all from John's point of view. You know, the, looking at John and then looking at what he's looking at. And um, what I thought might be more interesting was to make it as antiseptic as possible. Um, and to make it as uh, objective as possible. So what I tried to do was to create these kind of um, really, really graphic flat frames that were just about illustrating the information in the simplest, cleanest way possible. So, you know, no corners, no edges, uh, just these almost kind of diagrammatic frames that... Um, that give you the detail of precisely what kind of forensic information is being collected without any point of view. Uh, so you're getting this kind of illusion of um, objectivity. Uh, so that was a, that was a kind of uh, that was a decision that I made in order to do what I felt would amplify the emotion of the scene, which was to make it as antiseptic and as forensic as possible, and then just allow uh, Kevin to respond. Uh, of that, and that's really what the scene is about. It's you know, it's a it's a it's a completely non-verbal subtextual scene about guilt. Uh, so what you want to do is pile as much objective forensic detail about the body uh, onto the screen, and then allow him to respond to that. A bit about the editing and those both of those scenes. The editing, I think, is crucial. Were they tricky to edit, or? Um, yeah. Yeah, they were. Uh, what uh, what I collected on the day, because I, I don't know what I'm not So we had a guy in the room uh, who was a uh, whose job it is to do this, who was telling us what to do, and it's really long and really drawn out. Um, and what I wanted to do was to collect as much of that information as possible, so that and, you know, in a kind of documentarian point of view, so that we could then select the things that felt most kind of potent when we got to the cut. Uh, so there's a lot of material that we didn't use. And in fact, they talk all the way through it. Um, they, uh, uh, they say, I'm now uncovering the left arm. I am now taking fingernails. With it. So it's all spoken, but we took all out going, actually, don't need it. And it's more potent emotionally if it's all silent. Uh, so you really feel the fact that John's silent as well. It's worth uh, picking a scene that like the previous scene, a part of the thing for why you stay on a particular actor's face instead of cutting to the guy who's talking and stuff like that. I mean, um, really adds to the emotional power of the scene, I think. Yeah, it's what the actor is doing, I think. it's it, it, That's the joy of, of editing, is um, how much you can inflect meaning by where you place the cut. Uh, so it's, you know, it, it's, it's always back to whose story is it and what is the emotional exchange. So what is it that it that what's the transformation at every beat and whose transformation is it and then they're the person that you want to be with and then you really need to make sure that on the day that you've collected the information to uh, 
to provide you in the edit with the ability to cut to that actor and see that transformation. And I mean, it has happened to me before that um, uh, sometimes you're working with somebody and there's an emotional trauma. Now, I have to say, with, with all of these actors on Happy Valley and also on, on Z and, and most of the time, you know, the actors know, they know where the emotional transformations are and they know where those beats are and they will deliver them to you. And you get to the edit and there'll be all kinds of riches that you weren't even able to see on the day once you see them there on the big screen, that little flick of the eye. And all of those things that actually we're really good as people, we're really good at reading. Once you juxtapose those images against each other, we are brilliant at reading emotional subtext. Um, and so the actor, you know, 99 times out of 100, will deliver that to you. The very odd time when it's when you know there is an emotional transformation and the and it's not there, you can't find it in the actor's performance. Sometimes you'll find it in their correspondence performance. So it, it did happen to me once on Holby City where um, somebody else had cast an actor, and uh, the actor had this emotional transformation they had to do, and, I, and you know I, I knew on the day we weren't quite getting it, we weren't quite getting it, we went on, kept going, kept going, we ran out of time, and you know oh, constructed in the edit, and I got to the edit, and the performance just wasn't there. And I thought, do you know what? The woman who's the supporting character is really good. So I thought, let's just cut around and see what the supporting character was doing. And it was all there in her face. Mm -hmm. Even though she wasn't getting it from the woman particularly, who was, who was the primary uh, emotional transformation scene, the other one was such a good actor. She had responded to what should have been there anyway. And so we were able to use it because it gives you that moment, even though... I'm not being very articulate. So even though the character who was supposed to transform emotionally hadn't really delivered on the day, the other actor was such a good listener and responder that she was able to deliver that performance. And so it became apparent to the audience what that emotional beat was. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, and that's a really useful thing to know, that sometimes if you feel like it slipped through your grasp, you'll find it in the, in the other, other actors around the actor that is supposed to be delivering it. And that's <coughs> valuable. Um, and I love those actors so much. Um, yeah, and again, what we're trying to do here is we're trying to be a little bit expressionistic with the, with his experience, right? We're trying to say um, what happens to you when you are overwhelmed by guilt, when you're overwhelmed by a, a, an unwanted memory, an unwanted feeling. And we're trying to concretize that in a way that feels authentic and not trying to crack, you know, a walnut with it, a sledgehammer. Um, <coughs> But we wanted his panic. We wanted to, to concretize and visualize his panic. And he does give it in the performance, but it's also fun to, to give it cinematically, to amplify meaning uh, by using those, you know, the, the medium that we are in, where we can jump time, where we can juxtapose time, and the audience still gets it. So it's just kind of uh, a, a way of concretizing cinematically what he is delivering in terms of performance. Um, and I think he does that again here. Uh, Again, it's it's a similar thing in terms of trying to concretize emotions through uh, cinematic means. Again, you know, he's delivering something really lovely and you're just trying to concretize that going, he's having a breakdown, he's having a breakdown, he's losing touch with reality because this thing is coming up and smothering him and, uh, and he can't function anymore because it's so big. Uh, and so that's what we're trying to articulate. And it is there in the performance. Um, and it is also satisfying and I think and you may not agree but I think it feels to me emotionally truthful mm. that it blinds him in that moment and, and we want to be inside with him feeling that blinding 
uh, as he nearly crashes his car. Um, and it's a small event, but it feels really big to him, and that's what we want to try and articulate. Nobody was injured. For the other woman, it's like, don't be an idiot. But for him, it's this thing where he's disappearing under water, and he's trying to keep his head above water, and he can't. Um, and we're trying to do that with the images as well, obviously, in terms of cutting him off, and, and he's got this mask on in the way that he's lit. This actor, did you have to mind him? Because he just seems to be in such a heightened sense of anxiety. That guy. Jumpiness and nervy. But unbelievable. He's he, unbelievable. Does he switch that on and off? He switches that on and off. Because he's Mr. <coughs> he's anxiety. He's so powerful, Colin, and so true. He was doing soft puppet games in the uh, in the autopsy. Like, he's amazing. He's such a consummate professional. Um, but it's always truthful. Always truthful. Um, you know, and you can go 50 takes with him. And it's always different and always truthful. It's, uh, it's just a delight. Um, I that's enough of Happy Valley, is it? Um, I, I think all that stuff is amazing. And we have to also show the beautiful um, Charlie Murphy, looking fabulous and being brilliant. Huh. And uh, she's got nothing to do here except pour a glass of wine. Have a look at this. Mm -hmm. I just think that's two actors at the height of their powers, doing so little and delivering so much emotional information, um, really simply and cleanly. And, you know, as a director, I feel like, you know, what you really want to do in that instance is just get out of their way and um, and serve those performances in the best way that you can, support them in the best way that you can, liberate them in as much as you can, um, and then record the uh, the emotional transformations that are happening. You know, and again, you've got Kevin Doyle being completely still at the end there, and it's kind of what you need from him, you know, that just, to me anyway, that feels really truthful. And what Charlie is, um, the, the emotional beat for her is she gets stood up so she gets drunk. And it's all in the way that she pours the wine <laughs> and then knocks it back. That I feel anyway that there's a huge amount of meaning in that. Um, and that what you want to do is not surround her with bells and whistles. Just support her in terms of making her isolated in frame. Uh, and then allowing her to be free to deliver that in whatever way makes sense to her and capturing it. Um, Will I show you some Z? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and anything else about Happy Valley? It's a drama that I made with um, uh, Killer Films, who are a fantastic film company in New York. They made Carol and Boys Don't Cry and I'm Not There. Uh, they work a lot with Todd Haynes. Um, they are essentially just two women with a executive. And they asked me would I like to come and make a drama with them about Zelda Fitzgerald. It's a world away from uh, Happy Valley. Yeah, it, well, I, I would advise, you know, if you have a choice between making a murder story about, uh, you know, a very disenfranchised community in the middle of winter in North Yorkshire, <laughs> or... Anything <laughs> else? <laughs> yeah, it, it was, um, if there's a diametrically opposed um, uh, narrative, it's F. Scott Fitzgerald and Zelda Fitzgerald and Jazz Age in New York, have a blast. Um, but, you know, of course, the story is an interesting, layered, dark story. Um, theirs is a, is a very uh, troubled and enigmatic life. And they both died in their 40s. And uh, they both embraced and were repelled by the kind of ostentation and glamour that they lived through. Um, it's your first period piece as well, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. yeah, which was really fun. And we had a nice budget and we shot on location in Manhattan. And as you know, there are loads of Art Deco and Art Nouveau buildings still there. Uh, so that was uh, a, a real labour of love in terms of finding these absolutely beautiful locations. Um, the project uh, was driven by Christina Ricci, who brought the original novel uh, about Zelda Fitzgerald 
and then uh, played Zelda. She was really, really committed to the project. So um, what will I do? I'll show you, I've got a couple of different things I can show you, and I don't want this to take too long. Um, I'll show you, I'll show you um, one of the first parties they have, which is her wedding party, uh, that turns into something else. 18. So we're going to start with, um, she's got married, they're at a huge big booze up and she goes to call her mother who's at home in Alabama. Montgomery. Uh, so I thought it might be interesting to talk about nude scenes. Um, in, uh, in the US, it's, it's actually kind of great because um, what happens is you go through the actor's lawyer and uh, so what happened was I read the script, I phoned Christine Ricci going, there's new scene in the script. Uh, as, you know, as a filmmaker, I'm very aware of how vulnerable that makes actors, particularly actors like her, who have been famous for a very long time and can end up on websites and, you know, people can take screen grabs and those images can go a thousand different places they couldn't have gone 20 years ago. So I felt very sensitive to that idea that, you know, this, this could actually be quite a big deal. And um, so we had a, a phone conversation where uh, I put it to her that it was possible for us to film this scene without her having to appear in nude. And uh, she responded uh, very courageously and uh, choosing truth over anything else going, it's really important because it's a really big part of Zelda that she did this. Uh, and that she was transgressive in that way. And this is a character point and we need to just embrace it. So that was absolutely her choice. And back to what the lady at the back was talking about earlier, and I, I really felt that it was, it was important that that was her choice and not my choice. Um, because there are a hundred ways that you could film a scene like that. Um, and the point of the scene is the reaction of the people around her, actually. Um, and obviously it's better dramatically and emotionally to show it but there are ways of filming it and ways of telling that story where you wouldn't have to show it if she wasn't comfortable doing that. And, and so for me as a director, where it comes to uh, ownership of the body and ownership, and particularly for, for women, you know, ownership of the body uh, as somebody who's in the public eye like that, uh, her body belongs to her and I'm not going to tell her what she should do with it. And so once she said, no, it's important to the story, and I agreed with her, I, I did think it was important to the story, um, we were in business. So the next thing I had to do then was talk to the lawyers, talk to her lawyer about precisely what we were going to see, approximately for how long, what the shot was going to be, uh, and what the emotional context was going to be. So you go through all that and you sign a legal document and she signs the legal document and then it's all very clear. And actually it makes it so much easier because uh, there's no awkwardness, there's no um, uncertainty on either part, uh, and everybody acknowledges that... Uh, that this is something that is uh, important. Um, on the day then, what we did was we rehearsed, uh, she rehearsed in a, in a dressing gown, a pair of short, a pair of um, trainers, and uh, then we just cleared the set. And we ran two cameras at the same time, so we had a, a tighter lens and a looser lens, and um, so we could run a close-up and a looser frame at the same time. Uh, and the uh, Extras were obviously not in the room, so uh, the shot is clean of her, which was it, it was a, a 
uh, presentation style that I wanted to use anyway, so that was all fine. Um, and uh, then she was just a total pro. She just totally knew what she was doing. She knew um, uh, how uh, how to manage it for herself so that she was comfortable and secure in the space. Uh, and we made sure that everybody was aware that all the monitors were switched off so there was no feed coming out of the room where we were filming um, and that uh, she had cleared uh, the two camera guys to be present in the room with people that she knew and that she was comfortable with and me and that was it. Um, and uh, it was so uh, delightful to be in a position where um, everything is straightforward, planned out and legally binding. Um, and it, one of the things that, that Christina said is uh, that it, it was not always thus uh, and that this is a, a relatively new thing and um, you know, I think all to the good for our industry, apropos of what we were talking about, about people being cajoled and, and bullied into doing things that, uh, that make them feel vulnerable or out of control of their own performance. Um, and, you know, it gave her, it, she's got great confidence in that moment, which is what that character needs. You know, she needs chutzpah in that moment to come out and go, yeah, bloody gorgeous. <laughs> um, what else did I want to say about that? It's, uh, it's interesting trying to shoot those parties. quite interesting because, you know, all you want to say is, it's a party. So you're trying to find ways of doing that that will suggest that um, that it's and you know, nothing worse than screen parties. They're just so much to do. And we did rehearse that an awful lot to try and get the extras to move. Because what, what happens is, you know, if you're if you're a background artist and you're in that situation, it's like, well, you know, I'm just going to walk from here to there. That's my job. And you walk at half the pace that you would walk <laughs> if you were a normal human being. So, you know, you're rehearsing it and rehearsing it and rehearsing it, mostly for them, actually, mostly to try and get those people to develop a little story for themselves so that it feels truthful when they walk across the room and so that the people dancing are dancing to somebody. Um, and uh, then I, I, put, uh, I put feathers into it um, to try and say, it's out of control, but in a fun way. <laughs> and to give the, to give the scene some, uh, some visual animation, that there's something that feels a little bit chaotic in the room, uh, other than the background artists who are you know, mostly dressed in dark colours and not necessarily livening up the screen in the way they, that it feels alive when, you, when you're actually at a party like that. So the feathers were a way of doing that. They were a way of animating the, uh, the frame uh, and keeping it alive. So we had a, a, a poor grip assistant underneath the camera. <laughs> <laughs> uh, going to meet Tallulah Bankhead and her friends at the risk. <coughs> at the risk. So um, I'll show you the clip and then we can talk about it. Point of that little sequence, uh, just to illustrate again that idea of uh, use everything, use all the resources that you have um, to support storytelling. So you've got her in the Ritz where she's been dressed up by her husband, and what we wanted to do with the costume was make it really hard for her to move. <laughs> so she's got this thing that comes up to here, and, she, and then they're all dressed in the same colour, uh, and uh, the two backhead sisters are sitting really close together, so they're almost like kind of two heads going out of one. And then, um, in performance terms, not to give Christina any room. There's no room for her to get in. So they're rattling back and forth against each other with all these um, nasty comments about another woman. And there's no room for Christina to respond. Um, and uh, and what, we tr what I want to do in the bathroom, I'm not sure that completely worth really, is to just emphasize again that, that emotional beat of everybody's the same. This is uniform. Mm. Um, and I needed that out of the background artist who turns to look at her, but she didn't quite deliver it, I think, uh, that uh, look up and down in approval. She gives her a little smile, but it feels quite warm rather than an approving smile. It didn't quite work. But um, 
the intention is she's she has become part of this regimented army and she can be a part of it if she wants to and it's about being you know a fashionista in New York in 1920 this is what you wear and this is how you behave and it's quite rigid and it's quite straight and it's quite um, dark uh, and then the notion of cutting off your hair becomes this moment of liberation and rebellion. And then it, it's really funny, you know, you're trying to make a story, uh, a, a story beat about costume, actually. Um, and that final beat of what's she going to wear uh, became a huge thing. What is she going to wear at the end? And the, the costume designer made a dress for her, uh, which was amazing. It's kind of blaze of orange and red uh, and quite freeing. And put it on going, it looks like a costume. <laughs> so he went away and uh, he found that dress in Paris and it is from 1920 like all of her other costumes and suddenly it's like yeah that's it that's it feels right looks right it's incredibly freeing she looks like she's nude um, and uh, it gives you that sense of now she's light and now she's free um, and then uh, when we we had uh, scoped out the hotel and I really liked that um the room where the two men have the conversation with the whiskey is quite brown and it's full of books and it feels very, you know, authentically um, the kind of place you might have a conversation with Edmund Wilson. Uh, uh, we lit a big fire to make it look even more kind of, um, you know, the home of uh, patriarchal men of letters. Um, but the problem with the foyer was that it was quite white. And I thought, well, this is lovely, but now she's in this pale pink white dress. It's actually going to look very monochromatic if we put her against this she's not going to zing forward so uh the whole idea i was thinking about this whole idea of silent movies and you know she's uh, she was so photographed she was you know they were the posh and vex of their day they were photographed that was their the thing so um we put candles behind her to give that kind of silent movie shimmer and then uh, at, the, at the very last minute i got the set dresser just to put a whole load of color uh, a kind of Pierre Gilles frame around her so that the whole thing has this silent movie shimmer and you've got this green floral display right behind her that makes it look really constructed. It's a really constructed frame. Um, to try to uh, amplify that emotional beat of she's going to be the focus and the centre of everybody's desire. Um, and that was, uh, it was, it was a way of trying to create, trying to use costume and design to amplify the emotional transformation. Nice piece of writing as well, the charts or transformation of three scenes. It's very succinct, you know? Yeah, there's, a, there's some nice stuff earlier in it actually about uh, uh, what costume means in that context where she gets dissed for what she's wearing, which is, it, it's, it was nicely written actually, the writers are, uh, are lovely. It's a writing team called um, Dawn Prestwich and Nicole Yorkin who wrote the American version of The Killing, have you seen that? Mm. Um, and uh, I have to say they were absolutely and unequivocally delightful. Um, now, it's time for us to go, but what I really want to say to everybody is, so uh, I made Happy Valley, and because of the way that the world has changed, it was a BBC drama that went onto Netflix in the US, and that's how I got the offer to make Z. And because I made Z, I got an offer to make another big American drama that I'm going to do now, in two weeks' time. And because I got that, that offer, I met another um, producer who's offered me another big American drama straight after that. Um, and it all came out of the fact that Netflix picked up Happy Valley. So that's transformed um, my opportunities. Uh, and, it, it, and, and I know Ivan uh, is, am I allowed to say that? Yeah. Is, uh, is about to, uh, to do a deal for a, a global distribution of one of your dramas. The world is opening up, whereas 10 years ago, the kind of dramas that we were making, 
you know, they'd get a viewing on BBC if you were lucky they went out into a box set. Now you can find your niche audience. You can find the people who like exactly what you like all over the world. And you can stretch your arms out and bring those audiences into you. And the opportunities for us to make the kinds of stories that we want to make on a global budget, on a, on, on a scale that allows us to touch people all over the world, suddenly those opportunities are really present. And the great thing about the way that the Renaissance and television drama has worked is it is those really author stories. It's those really authentic, interesting, different, original stories that get the most traction. You know, it turns out the audience has great taste. The audience is going for stories that aren't actually generic, that aren't actually stuff that you've seen before. And they're going for things that feel really exciting. And so I think for us as storytellers, and for us as English-speaking storytellers, in what has been, you know, a small country off the periphery of Europe, suddenly we we have an opportunity to really be at the centre of something really big. So I would encourage everybody to go out and write your stories and tell your stories and find your audience because uh, they're ready and waiting for you. If you would like to support Women in Film and Television Ireland, join us today on wft.ie.